Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Revolt Black News, presented by State Farm. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. Terror in Texas. Eight dead and hundreds injured during the Travis Scott Astro World Festival. As the victims caught in the crush are remembered, conspiracy theorists flood social media with unconfirmed details of what really happened. We break down the anatomy of a catastrophe. Then we start getting into this question about race. All eyes on Georgia as the testimony is underway in the trial of the three men accused of shooting and killing Ahmaud Arbery. We break down the strategic art of jury selection, asking can and will justice be delivered for Ahmaud and his family? Plus, they want yay against it'd be Drake, right? What Kanye is saying about a versus battle of a different sort in the name of social justice. And Missy Elliott finally gets her Hollywood Walk of Fame honors. And then the exit from Ethiopia, while all eyes are on the nation as the humanitarian crisis intensifies and the growing scrutiny from all around the world. We've got all that and much more as the revolt black news revolution starts right now. Hey everybody, now we're from the ATL. Welcome to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm Ebony K. Williams. We begin with the faces of the innocent. The eight people dead, caught in the crush and chaos. Many of them trampled and others crushed during rapper Travis Scott's Astro World Festival. Hundreds more were injured. Now as the investigation as to what really happened continues, tonight we ask the question, why this concert was able to continue despite warnings from authorities. We're also delving into the future of Travis Scott and will he forever be remembered for this concert chaos? The anatomy of a catastrophe is tonight's top story. I'm honestly just devastated and I could never imagine anything like this just happening. It felt like we was in a concert in hell. That was like some demonic shit. And what was so crazy, like people were screaming help. Everybody who was associated with this should be held accountable for the lives that were lost today. With the emotional details continuing to emerge as folks relive the astral world horror, now comes the accountability. Multiple lawsuits have been filed targeting not only Travis Scott, but Drake, Live Nation, and the concert venue. This is not the first instance where people were injured at concerts. It's a long history in the United States and in the world where individuals who came to a concert looking to have fun, looking to enjoy themselves, did not leave still alive. I think that our security in Houston is not used to that crowd. And when you have someone like Travis Scott headlining and people haven't been out the house in two years, you're gonna get that crowd who pushes through a gate and is willing to do whatever to see the artist that they love. Nandi Howard, editor-in-chief of Houstonian Magazine was covering the concert. Travis was like stopping 
the performance. We need somebody to help him. Somebody passed out right here. He was kind of getting little signals, like people were passing out in the crowd, so he would tell everybody to take a step back. Outside of the social media reports, he was stopping the performance. Like he was, hey, everybody, stop. People are passing out in the crowd. I need you all to take a step back. A crowd that hours before was at a fever pitch with lawlessness, breaking through gates and overpowering security. And despite being advised by Houston authorities not to go on with the show, Scott took the stage anyway, amping up crowds into a frenzy as he's been known to do at many of his shows. On August 2nd, 2015, Travis Scott was arrested in Chicago for disorderly conduct after encouraging fans to jump over security barricades during his performance at Lollapalooza. So as we come out of this pandemic, was it for fiscal reasons that the show went on, recouping what is perhaps the cash cow for artists, touring? His fans are moshers and ragers. And honestly, at Astro Road, you know, everybody was expecting the real rage day too. Ragers, described as diverse, yet a big majority of his audiences are suburban white followers which, judging by much of the social media video taken at Astroworld America, is getting a glimpse of the fans of hip hop. And now the outrage. So would coverage be just as fervent had the crowd looked a lot different? All right, with that said, let's bring in publicist and festival attendee, Darian Perry, who's also CEO and founder of the I Am Freshy brand. We've got event promoter, Corey. Latoya Evans, she's a PR and crisis management expert. And also joining us is crowd safety expert, Morton Fanning Vendello. Welcome you all to the show and thank you so much for being with us. Corey, I wanna start with you. Uh, what do you think is the pivot that's gonna happen from now on, especially when it comes to promoters of hip hop festivals in particular, as a result, of course, of this epic tragedy that happened with Astroworld? Thank you for having me, Ebony. Uh, I think the natural pivot may be looking at age requirements first and foremost. Beyond that, I think uh, we probably need to break it down by artist and genre, if I'm being honest. Uh, for instance, a Chris Brown concert and a Travis Scott concert may both do 50,000 people, but the crowd interaction and music is different. Um, so we may need to take different precautions there. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, let people have fun, but safety is important. Travis and their team, are they were prepared based on the numbers, uh, but... As we know, something unfortunate happened and lives were lost. And um, just knowing that team and, you know, being there with them, um, they're distraught and it's unfortunate. Now, Corey, do you think that we're going to see different behavior from artists moving forward? Uh, for instance, we just saw recently Tiana Taylor. She stopped her performance and she made sure that security was able to lift a woman who looked to be in peril out of the crowd. Do you think we'll see more of that type of immediate change? Yeah, yeah. I, I think what you see with Tiana is PTSD from what happened. Uh, I, I think Travis is one of the biggest in the industry. So I think there's a lot of concern as as we talk about uh, the rise in the front and back of house safety, uh, especially when you're talking 50 to 100,000 people. Indeed. Now, LaToya, let's talk about this from a, a publicity standpoint, from a PR crisis management perspective. How do you think Travis Scott comes out of this and Latoya do you think that Travis Scott the artist will always be identified with this tragedy well Ebony I really think he comes out of this the only way is with actionable compassion we saw his initial statement and his commitment to pay for funeral expenses and mental health counseling 
but this is still a developing situation. But in terms of him being always affiliated with this, I think people will always remember it. But here's the real positive thing. He has a long career ahead of him. Um, I absolutely don't think this is the end. He only has opportunity to grow from this. And I certainly don't think that this is the end of the road for him. Thank you for that. Now, Morton, from a crowd management perspective, talk a little bit about the role of security in all of this. Uh, Travis Scott's team has been flagged about overcrowding before. This was not new. And how much was preventable? First and foremost, it's, it's important to state that, that the safety of the, the crowd or the attendees to a festival really relies with the organizers of the festival. I completely agree with, with, with what uh, uh, Corey uh, said exactly that, that we need to, as um, crowd safety managers, look at who's your crowd. That's, that's one of the most important questions simply to, uh, to ask, because as soon as we know who's the crowd and what, what, what do we mean by saying who's the crowd? Well, we mean how animated is the crowd during a concert and also how is the artist interacting with, with the crowd uh, during the, uh, the concert. And as soon as we, we have those uh, uh, variables and, and know how they, they play out, then we can begin to look more into the, uh, to, to the setup of, the, of the, 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 the audience area and the, and the crowd safety organization. And then, of course, what is the showstop procedure? If we have decided to make a showstop, how do we execute that one? You would need to have a complete showstop because otherwise people won't move away. So you can you can get to the to the uh, to the injured people. So I so I think that there's actually a, a lot of obvious measures that could have been taken in uh, in this case and and which we have uh, uh, which we see applied. Uh, at a lot of festivals uh, around the world. When I first saw this tragedy, I was shocked mainly because we are still in this global pandemic. Why in the world uh, was there just so much uh, density at this particular show? And, and are, we, are we basically seeing, I guess, a response uh, to two years of people being kept in their homes? I, I think you hit the nail on the head, I Ebony. Mean, uh, it, it's a little bit of cabin fever. When people got that, that okay to kind of... Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Go outside. I think that's what you're seeing. And I think when concerts got the A-OK, it kind of gave an, an inkling like, hey, maybe we still can or because it's outside and maybe a little bit different. I think that's what happened here. Right. Darian, I want to go to you now. As a festival attendee and a publicist, where do you see the culpability uh, lying? We don't want to play a blame game per se, but people are responsible here. Where do you see that accountability? I honestly don't think anybody is at fault, and I can't say anybody is at fault for my position um, until we see all of the evidence and, wh and where, the, where someone dropped the ball at. What I do know is there's this narrative that's going around that Travis did not stop the show and he stopped the show three times that night um, to send help based off of where he could see help was needed. But you have to think about it. You're outside. There's 50,000 people, even people passing out next to me. You think this is normal festival activity. You think this is a normal Travis Scott show. This is what people come to do. People come to rage. 
people come to be in a mosh pit. So you don't really think of it as anything more than that. And it goes back to what Corey said. I think we're just in a sense of having cabin fever, but we're excited to be outside. And so the only thing that we're thinking about in those moments is how to have a good time. I think it's really harsh to put that solely on the artist. All right. Well, we want to echo those sentiments, of course, Darian, and give our deep condolences to all that lost their lives. Darian, LaToya, Corey, and Morton, thank you all for being with us. Now, coming up next, the Ethiopian humanitarian crisis reaches fever pitch levels as the world weighs in. But first, all eyes are on the state of Georgia and the three white men on trial for the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. Will the racial makeup of that jury result in justice for Ahmaud? We'll discuss it all up next. So we start getting into this question about race. And again, uh, quite a few African-American jurors were excused through preemptory strikes exercised by the defense. But that doesn't mean that the court has the, the authority to reseat um, simply again because there's this prima facie case, because we see it sort of one of those, it's not one of those we see it, therefore it is. There's now additional steps the court needs to engage in. Welcome back. Now, that was Judge Timothy R. Walmsley of the Glenn County Superior Court, summating his reasons for allowing an almost all-white jury in the trial of Gregory McMichael, Travis McMichael, and William Bryan Jr., who all pleaded not guilty to charges of murder, aggravated assault, and false imprisonment in the death of Ahmaud Arbery back in February 2020. Now, in the jury selection process, 11 out of 12 black jurors were excused through peremptory strikes, leaving 11 white jurors and one black juror in that Glenn County courtroom. To be clear, that's an 8% representation. Now, according to Data USA, Glenn County is 26% black. So when it comes to a jury of one's peers, is that truly the case here? As we head into day six of this trial, how will or won't that representation equate to justice? Helping break it all down for us is criminal defense attorney and senior trial counsel at Joey Jackson Law, Bernada Villalona. Also with us is an activist who's on the ground in Brunswick, Georgia, Triana Arnold-James. Welcome both of you to the show. Bernarda, I do want to start with you, though. Can you help break down a bit of this strategy as it relates to Vordier? Is there more than meets the eye here with these preemptory strikes of the black jurors? Absolutely. So when it comes to selecting a jury, the number one purpose is to get a fair and impartial jury. So where does that lead us? The law allows that every party, the prosecution as well as, well as the defense, they have unlimited cost charges challenges, meaning that they can get rid of a juror because they think that they can't be a fit to proceed mm -hmm. in a trial. However, according to United States Supreme Court, you cannot use any of those challenges to intentionally discriminate against a juror. Here, the defense used 11 of their strikes in order to get rid of 11 of the 12 African-American jurors in this case. The judge mm. asked this, the three defense attorneys, why did you strike each and each of those 11 jurors? The defense actually stated some race-neutral reasons, even though the judge couldn't prove that they actually discriminated against these jurors. And that's how they ended up sticking with just one African-American juror on that jury. 
Now, Bernarda, I know, counsel, you don't have a crystal ball. Do you think this will be an issue on appeal? In regards to appeal, when it comes to the prosecution, if the prosecution gets an acquittal, guess what? The prosecution rarely ever appeals because guess what? Double jeopardy. The case is not going to be tried. However, the defense does have the ability to appeal the case. And I think that is why Judge Wongsley sided with the defense because he didn't want to be appealed on such a major and crucial decision in this case. Because remember, trials are won and lost based on who you select on a jury. Indeed. Triana, I want to ask you, you are on the ground in Brunswick, Georgia. Uh, just describe for us what the, the temperature is like in the community. Uh, I'm reading reports that uh, Reverend Al Sharpton is holding candlelit uh, prayer vigils for the family and community tonight. What is the environment like for the community? Thank you so much. Uh, the environment is hopeful. Uh, we're trying to stay uh, open. Um, mm. We're prayerful. Um, that the that is is in this is heartbreaking as well. The more and more videos and testimony that comes out, uh, even today, is is heartbreaking. And anger, anger is another uh, uh, term I would use as well. Um, so so that's how it is, you know. And and we're just trying to stay prayed up. Indeed. Uh, Bernard, I want to ask you, there was a moment on Tuesday, right, where the defense seemed to get extremely flustered after a number <laughs> of objections uh, were sustained. And the judge then proceeded to excuse the jury out of the room. Uh, right now, I want everybody to watch this particular clip, and, and then let's react. Objection. Once again, formal question. On what day? He's already testified to what he did, and you've asked him, it was either you or oh, Mr. I'm so confused here, Judge. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, if you could please take a step outside. I would suggest that you temper uh, some of that very quickly um, because it will not be tolerated in this court. I do not need an explanation. I do not need an apology. All right. Now, when the jury went home, we all know they could have seen that clip just as we just saw it. So, Bernarda, is excusing the jury out of the room effective, really? Or is that just kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, courtroom theater because the Internet will obviously make its way to the jury? What do you think? So one would hope that this jury that was excused after the outburst and tantrum of this attorney who tried to put Ahmad Arby on trial and was upset that he couldn't get that type of evidence in through this witness. So Judge Wamsley checked him on that, but he had a tantrum. So in regards mm -hmm. to the jury being let out and put in a different room so that way the judge can address them, you will hope that they did not find out of what actually took place. In fact, at the end of each day, at the end of testimony, the judge gives the jury an ammunition that they are not to listen to any news or watch any mm -hmm. social media that is reporting on this case. And if they have been inadvertently exposed to such information relating to the case, that they are to report it to the judge. So one would hope that they weren't exposed to exactly what happened and what the judge told this attorney. But hey, we're human nature. It's witnesses. They were witnesses in that courtroom when the attorney went off. Mm -hmm. Triana, I want to ask you about the defense claims uh, that they were trying to make a citizen's arrest. And you were kind of referring to what is being heard in the courtroom as painful. Do you think that black folks feel like Ahmaud Arbery and his family is going to see any kind of justice with this particular jury? 
I believe that they will. That law was actually written in 1863. And for people to use that now, uh, I believe that it is a tragedy. And, you know, at the time, they didn't even talk about citizen's arrest. So there, so it's, mm. it's a, an excuse to say, to justify their actions on what they did in hunting this young man down and killing him. I, I believe that because of that, uh, because of their ill intentions, uh, that, that that we will seek justice. And, and plus the statements that they're making against each other, you know, mm -hmm. that, you know, mm -hmm. that those things are, are, are damaging um, to yes. each and every one of them. Yeah. One could almost say, Chariana, that it, it seems as if they are criminalizing the blackness of Brother Ahmad. Uh, I want to end... Uh... If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's. Uh, with you, Counselor uh, Bernada... You know, those types of tactics uh, that she mentioned of uh, co-defendants essentially uh, coming against one another, we see that typically in these kinds of cases. Just, again, I have to go back to... I, I wrote an op-ed piece when there was a conviction of the white female officer that shot and killed brother Botham, Botham Jean yes. uh, in his mm -hmm. home. And one of the things I thought made a difference there, counsel, and I want to know your take, was that it was a diverse jury pool, you know? So you had jurors of color... Uh, of, of actually a few different races and cultures that were maybe able to identify uh, with the deceased victim of that case. We don't have that here. Do you think it will make a difference in how we see this ending for the McMichaels and William Bryan and whether or not they will be convicted? So I will hope not that it doesn't make a difference. I hope that that one African-American person that is sitting in that jury can hold it down for us and hold it down in the sense of use your voice. You are in the room where the decision is being made. So you put the point of view of Ahmad Arbery. Why could have he been running? Because there's certain things that a white person won't understand. Me watching that video, I see is a modern day lynching in the sense of you have a black man that's being chased by two pickup trucks with two people who actually have guns with a Confederate flag license plate. So you think I'm going to stop and have a conversation with you? <laughs> Not at all. And that's what I need that African-American juror to stand up and speak and represent mm. Ahmad Arbery in that sense, because your perspective is exactly why we need diversity inside of the jury room, because you will provide that perspective that another race probably will not be able to comprehend. Indeed, and we know how important those cultural distinctions and understandings are. Perhaps some optimistic uh, news here is that it only takes one juror. Uh, to, to make sure that justice is, is seen here. Uh, Attorney Bernarda, uh, Sister Triana, we want to thank you both for your time. Now, up ahead, a sneak peek as the Revolt Summit returns to Atlanta. But up next, the preacher's wife gets a reimagining. The trailer for Atlanta Season 3 drops, and Kanye's drink champs well, pretty much broke the internet. All that and more in this week's Entertainment Roundup after this.
And what a day for Missy Elliott, one of the most iconic female rappers and producers in the game, finally getting her flowers and her place on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, as great friends like Sierra were right there with her. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm Ebony K. Williams. Now it's time to check out some other Hollywood headlines. Our guest correspondent, Kennedy Rue McCullough, has all the details. Hey, Kennedy. Hey there, Ebony. Let's start with Kanye coming clean over a cocktail. But first, Glover's got an Atlanta-sized treat, and that tops this week's Revolt Radar. After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? All eyes on Atlanta. Donald Glover gave fans a real Halloween treat. He released the cryptic first teaser for season three of the Emmy-winning FX series. After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? This is the first actual footage from the long-awaited Atlanta season three, which will premiere in the first half of 2022. In the video, Paperboy, aka Brian Tyree Henry, is shown in an opulent dining room, following some rather bizarre images of European settings. The series films seasons three and four across the continent. This is Dudley, the Reverend's new assistant. Who sent you exactly? The top man himself. Now that's what I call good looking. My toy. The late Whitney Houston, Denzel Washington, and Courtney B. Vance's 1996 hit holiday film, The Preacher's Wife, is about to get an upgrade. Henry? Oh my. Vance and his real-life wife, Angela Bassett, are producing a reimagined modern-day version of The Preacher's Wife, with director Anthony Hemingway calling the shots. No, you love him. Yeah, he knows it, too. No word on a release date about the film that focuses on an angel who comes to Earth to help a preacher and his wife save the church and their family. <laughs> it's good to see you laugh again. They want yay against... It'd be Drake, right? Kanye stirring up the rap game on Revolt's Drink Champs and telling the hosts Nor E and DJ Effin about his long-term beef with Drake. When you and Drake together, who's winning that? I'm winning every situation. Kanye, who just goes by Ye, is actually holding out an olive branch to settle his beef with Champagne Poppy. West, alongside Houston rapper Jay Prince, posted this Instagram video calling for a truce in the name of social justice. Uh, both me and Drake have taken shots at each other, and it's time to put it to rest. I'm asking Drake on December 7th to join me on stage as a special guest to share the two biggest hours of the year live in Los Angeles with the ultimate purpose being to free Larry Hoover. Hoover is the one-time Chicago gang leader in prison for a laundry list of charges, including drug conspiracy, extortion, and murder. He has since reportedly turned over a new leaf advocating community charity and criminal justice reform. It's not clear whether Drake will participate. Ye's low-key demeanor in the video is a 180 from his no-holds-barred appearance on Drink Champs. Let's keep the revolt radar focused on the movers and shakers in and out of Hollywood. Joining me now are Blue Toulousma and Daryl Archie. Thanks, guys, for joining us. We want to start with Jay-Z's Rock Nation and Reform Alliance to host a new job fair in New York City November 18th. How much does this fit into his call for social justice? 
I think it's perfect. Uh, Jay-Z has a responsibility as he put on himself, you know, from his rap days and even till now. He's been about social justice and he's been about getting people to the forefront of where they need to get to and also helping out the disadvantage. And this is super perfect for what's going on right now. I also love the fact that this is a long-term solution. Sometimes when we hear about alliances and helping people out, we think about one-time charitable donations. This is an ongoing way for people to be able to feed their families. And we have to be honest, it's not just a fiscal thing. Self-esteem is tied to your ability to provide for yourself and your family. Amen. So there are a lot of folks out there who are going to get their sense of self back by being able to get back into the workforce and take care of those they love. How interesting is it that this job fair is happening when a large number of people are actually walking away from their jobs? I love the fact that this is happening right now. It needs to happen right now. And I really hope companies realize there's more people out here that needs jobs, especially those ex-cons are coming back out into the workforce. If other people don't want jobs, these ex-cons and ex-felons, they would love to get in the workforce, create something amazing for themselves and their family. I just hope these companies, you know, who piggybacked off of the Black Lives Matter movements and who piggybacked off of the social justice justice reform, hopefully reform their policies and um, hiring these um, former convicted felons. Yeah, and Americans aren't leaving their jobs in, in droves because they are lazy and don't want to work. I know that's a sexy yeah. line. They're leaving because of how they're being treated, right? And so the thing about someone like Jay-Z and his reform alliance being involved is these men and women are walking into these places trusting that they're going to be offered jobs that are going to treat them well. Not yeah. just I don't want to work. It's like, what kind of job am I going to have? Being at home during COVID, but it's all sit around and think about where do I work and why am I there? So I hope companies are intentional about the culture that they're bringing so that folks want to come back into their job force. Do you feel as if this is a second chance for a lot of people who were otherwise would have been written off because of their disadvantages or because of maybe the prison pipeline? I think a lot of times we talk about wanting to reform someone until it's time to give them an actual chance in real life. Mm -hmm. And we always say, you know, we want to reform you. Okay, but part of being reformed is being allowed to work, come back into society and come back into the fray. So you want people to be reformed, but you won't hire them. You won't give them opportunities. Jay-Z, he's humanizing these people. A lot of black and brown people are in jail for nonviolent offenses for selling the same marijuana that is now making corporations billions of dollars. But being able to say, I'm a member of society again. You guys have to welcome me back. Surprisingly, that's going to raise the eyebrows of all these companies. Yes, these are human beings. Okay, let's switch gears to Paula Patton, who is in a new BT Plus series, and she's making headlines for saying she doesn't want to identify as biracial because she feels like it's offensive. Blue, are you surprised that Paula is so candid to be that open about race right now? I write and speak a lot about identity politics and identity is a very personal thing. Right. And I will say this is a perfect example of why you should not just read the headline. Because when mm -hmm. I first read the headline, I was like, wait, what, what is she talking about? And mm -hmm. it took me a second to understand what was happening. But when you actually read what she said about why she finds it offensive, it mm -hmm. actually makes perfect sense. And when hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah. Or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities. 
from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Somebody who is both is leaning into their blackness. I am never going to have a problem with that. Yeah. And I'm cool. never going to have a problem with a, with a person of color leaving into their blackness. <laughs> yes. So even though I was taken aback with what she said, sis, I love you for bringing this <laughs> to our attention because she's calling out her own. She's calling out the biracial folks in her fray. So this is not me, guys. Don't come to me. And saying some of us use being biracial as a badge of honor to say that we're better than people who are mm-hmm. full black. And mm-hmm. she's saying, no, I'm still a black woman. And race is not just about genetics, but also social. I love her for being aware of her privilege, but leaning towards her black. Blue and Archie, thank you so much for joining us. All right, coming up next, all eyes are on Ethiopia as the humanitarian crisis intensifies as the world responds. That's next. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm special correspondent Naima Abdullahi. Recently, we covered the humanitarian crisis in Ethiopia. The East African country is spiraling into what is being called a civil war. This is a conflict between the federal government and the Tigray region. The government is now declaring a state of emergency, and this conflict has now reached the one-year mark. Many of you chimed in online after our first report aired, and we're not walking away from this story. Here on Revolt Black News Weekly, we will continue to cover what is happening in Ethiopia and give you perspective, much-needed perspective about the diaspora. We're seeing reports that the Ethiopian government is now asking retired soldiers and veterans to get involved. And numerous media outlets, including CNBC, are reporting that the TPLF, Tigray People's Liberation Front, in alliance with another opposition group are advancing to the capital of Addis Ababa. But it's worth noting that's all Western media. So tonight in our conversation, we ask what is this nation on the brink of and how can this country at war with itself with escalating violence find a resolution that works for Ethiopia and Ethiopian people? And here we are curating the right kind of conversation. Here is our panelist to bring you much needed insight. Joining me is Ethiopian journalist Hermela Aragawi, co-founder of the Ethiopian American Development Council, Nebiyu Asfau, executive director of the New Africa Institute, Simon Tespa Miriam. Also with us is research professor of political science at UCLA, Edmund J. Keller. Carmela, I want to start with you as a journalist who is also Tigrayan. People might assume where your um, allegiance lies. As a journalist, you've been using your platform to bring attention from multiple angles what's happening in Ethiopia, whether it's being unafraid to bring criticism to the TPLF, whether it's being um, critical of the federal government. Tell us about your stance, because in a previous interview, you said that it may be considered an outlier, but you're just bringing multiple perspectives into the conversation, right? 
That's right, Naima. Yeah, the general perception is that if you are Tigrayan and you are for the cause of Tigrayans, that you are pro-TPLF, which is a political group. But there are a few reasons why I argue that the opposite is probably true. First of all, TPLF is not just some underdog political group that is fighting for the people of Tigray. It is a powerful group that was running the entire country of Ethiopia for nearly 30 years and much of it by force. During that time, they abandoned their original cause of being the liberators of the Tigrayan people. Uh, and that region was poor. They did not invest in that region. It has a gross record of rate, much of it uh, uh, because officials have turned a blind, lie, blind eye to it or were a part of it because CPLF got into power on the blood, the 17-year struggle of Tigrayans. So they already had a lot of debt uh, that they owed. So it is a ludicrous uh, ask of the Tigrayan people to once again fight for them. It is in the best interest of Tigrayans to go ahead and support the elected government of Ethiopia. And, but they don't have a voice because that region has been held hostage. This is not just a small underdog rebel group. They've been around for 30 years and they have a lot of hands in uh, a lot of parts of the world. Uh, Nabiyu, what do you make of reports surfacing online that opposition groups are starting their journey um, in advancing to the capital of Addis Ababa? We're seeing those reports. What do you make of it? Yeah, those reports were going on from Thursday uh, up until Friday. Um, there was a great deal of alarmist reports that were coming out from the corporate media. Fortunately, what was on the media was hysteria. It was not the reality uh, on the ground in Ethiopia. If you don't mind me asking, what do you mean by hysteria? The, the hysteria was to give, give an appearance that there was a coup underway in Ethiopia. I mean, there was a, a staged PR uh, stunt in D.C., for example, of nine tribal extremists claiming that they're putting together a transitional government, right? At the same time, the media is showing this unrelated picture of um, Addis Ababa under siege, about to fall. Uh, the, the reports were saying the rebels will take over Addis Ababa within two days. Um, but what was happening was people from Addis Ababa and around there were posting pictures on Twitter saying, there's nothing going on here, it's free. And, and on Sunday, half a million people in Addis Ababa and four other cities in Ethiopia came out basically saying no more uh, disinformation from the Western media, no more lies. And that's what really triggered the hashtag, hashtag no more movement. Um, this is a pattern of interventionist, Western interventionist media coverage that I really believe has actually fueled uh, the fire in this conflict. Dr. Keller, as a professor who teaches in America, how do you respond to the viewpoint that Western media is creating a false alarm? Last I heard, uh, the, uh, the opposition TPLF had uh, entered uh, Cambodia and Desi. That's almost 300 miles away from the capital city. That's not right at the doorsteps, okay? So that's... Uh, that, that, you know, if that's what they mean about a false alarm in the city right now, uh, I, I guess they, they're right. But at the same time, uh, the language coming from the government right now, Ethiopian central government, average citizens are being asked to pick up arms against the invading uh, TPLF. And, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, uh, that sounds pretty much like a, a very bad crisis right now. Dr. Keller, when you hear the distrust for Western media, 
that, you know, some Africans may say every now and then, where do you think that distrust for Western media when it comes to really covering Africa as a whole, where do you think that's that's rooted in and where do you think it comes from? Well, you know, listen, uh, the Western media, as you know, generally uh, has their own sort of focus uh, of things that they like to concentrate on. Uh, they concentrate mainly on the humanitarian issue, which is a good thing, okay? Uh, and uh, they don't really sort of ask the question that you asked when you uh, set up this, uh, this interview. You know, what, what is really uh, the cause of this conflict at this point, you know? And when we look at what's being reported and what's not being reported and the information that goes out into the world in the midst of all eyes being on Ethiopia, um, what role can the international community play on this? And I want to play when it comes to this, and I want to direct that question to Simon. The international community has called out the Ethiopian federal government saying that they should put down their guns. They've been sanctioned, but that's very one-sided. They don't call out TPLF. And if they do call out TPLF, it's a slap on the wrist with no actions that are you know, followed up on. And so there have to be actual actions that stop and prevent this war um, by not taking sides in the conflict or not intervening. And so they keep pushing for a political solution. But the truth is, uh, who would call for a political solution when, you know, with like Al-Qaeda or, you know, or ISIS or Al-Shabaab, we can go down the list of very designated terrorist groups. Um, and so this is very much the case with TPLF. And so the international community needs to call out TPLF and be uh, unbiased and neutral in this conflict and not intervene against the wishes of the people of the region. What the international community can do is limited. Uh, I think dealing with this uh, as a humanitarian crisis, uh, calling upon the two sides to lay down arms to come to the negotiating table, that's the correct approach for the international community. This is something that the Tigrans and the, and the Amharas are gonna to have to settle. So let's go off of that, right? Um, I saw a post online that said, a victory for Ethiopia and Ethiopian people is a victory for Africa. Simon, when you hear that, what does that mean to you and what will it take to unify Ethiopia in the midst of the country being at war with itself right now? Well, Ethiopia is the second most populous country in Africa, um, huge population. Um, and it's an influential country in the fact that it was not called. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Colonized by uh, any powers, um, unlike the rest of Africa, unfortunately. And so it has a historic role that it can play in Africa and can lead, you know, and help lead Africa. So Africa has to stand with Ethiopia and keep pushing the agenda forward of like true liberation, true sovereignty, pan-Africanism. And so it's exciting times. And I think we have to keep this momentum going. And I think it's only going to accelerate. Before this conversation ends, there is something each of you brought up that I think can be encompassed into a big picture question. What country will be an example of African success if Africa can't seem to gain the prosperity, peace, and economic welfare that it needs to reach its fullest potential because of the hardship that it faces? 
I think you're watching Ethiopia do exactly that. The revolution is underway. Uh, it's going to take a lot of work. Uh, there's going to be a lot of reconstruction and rehabilitation of uh, Ethiopians of all ethnicity that have been suffering through this time. Simon Nabilu um, and Her Hermela, thank you so much for this conversation. It's much needed. When we come back on Revolt Black News Weekly, much more after the break. in Atlanta, where the Revolt Summit and AT&T are taking over the city. One of the Revolt Summit and AT&T's main areas, the AT&T Office Hours. It offers 10-minute one-on-one mentorship discussions between power players and aspiring talent. Black Safety First, one of this year's afternoon discussions. It'll be a conversation on the main stage around black people and crime. It'll include activist Tamika Mallory, attorney Benjamin Crump, and family members who've lost loved ones to violent crime in our communities. Take a look at how we're kicking things off. I got a phone call around 11 o'clock p.m. and the person on the phone, which was my son's girlfriend, said that Justin had been shot. I said, can you tell me what's going on? And he said, I don't have a lot of information for you but I can let you know that your son didn't make it. It was a hard, frantic knock that came at my door on that day. And I didn't believe the young guy he was telling me my daughter had been shot in the head. These are members of the community shooting each other. If you have woman would do anything for anybody. Family and friends are devastated. Police are devastated. This should have never happened. It will be one powerful panel, and I'll be hosting it as we get deep into the conversation. Next week, we'll bring you the highlights on the show. And for those of you in Atlanta, we cannot wait to see you in person at the summit. Now that does it for us. I'm Ebony K. Williams for Revolt Black News Weekly and the revolution that is shaking the foundation of popular culture. there ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster oh you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you yeah or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about well get ready to feel that excitement all over again because amazon prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level absolutely prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker it's about diving into a world of endless possibilities from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else and don't even get me started on the music. 
Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before.